Well, leading out of these songs of worship, I'd ask that you take your Bible and uh, turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. As you're turning there and just thinking about the words that we had just sang, we, when we thought about your, uh, the greatness of the Lord and his mercy and love, as we sang in that uh, second to last song, and talked about falling down and crying, holy, 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 and then from this last song, all who gather here by grace, we, we all draw near together and we bless your name, love so de- amazing, love so divine, um, demands my soul, my life, my all. I was pretty close there, a little bit off. But those are songs that call us to worship God and to, and to praise God because of his manifold blessings. As we consider who God is and all the many ways in which he has blessed us, those songs and those lyrics bring us to that place of praise and that place of worship. And so with that in mind, I encourage you to listen as I read and follow along as I read these words that God wrote through David in Psalm 145. It's entitled, The Song of Praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. Of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cries and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh Bless his holy name forever and ever. Our Father, we thank you for this, your most holy word. And Lord, this is a reminder indeed to, for us as a congregation, for us as the saints as we gather, that our main purpose is to to send back praise to you as we consider all that you have done. Lord, we want to be faithful to respond in praise and in adoration and in worship. Lord, as we even consider these words to us now, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would empower these words, would breathe 
new life into them. We pray that you would forgive us our sin. Forgive me my sin so that I would not get in the way of your word. And so, Lord, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine these words and empower them in Jesus' name. Amen. As Dave was praying just about the summer, I just thought about the fact that this sermon is a bit of a transition. It is the last of our summer psalms, as we've been considering a number of the psalms this morning. We've been thinking this summer about various kinds of emotions that, that people have and, uh, and representative people have. The psalmists represent us, in a sense, and they are sending up their cries to God for various different kinds of situation as followers of God, but sometimes wondering where God is and pleading to God for help. From Psalm 13, we wondered with the psalmist this summer why it seems that God sometimes forgets our situations. It seems to us that, that, that God is silent sometimes. We said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And then we, we found relief in God's forgiveness as we went through Psalm 32 when his hand seems heavy upon us sometimes. In discipline, we can be thankful for God's forgiveness. In Psalm 46, we asked about where God is when everything around us is in chaos. Psalm 72 showed us how God is at work in our country. We saw the urgency then of handing a vision down to the next generation in Psalm 78. There's a quick reminder again of that here as we looked in Psalm 145 down in verse 4. And then last week from Psalm 119, we were so grateful for the lamp of God's word that helps us cut through the darkness that is in our world. And we're going to end today by putting all of that together. You can think of putting all of that together in one big casserole dish and tasting the goodness of the Lord and praising God for the fact that he's there through all those expressions from us to God, all those pleadings. God has proved himself to be present and active in our pleadings, and our response then is to praise God for that. After the long weekend, we're going to transition into our fall ministry season where where we want to start to be thinking about our roles and our service in the church. But it is entirely appropriate that we spend this last Sunday in the month of August considering God himself and his glories and his beauty and his majesty. It's things that we've sung about already this morning. And how all of those attributes call forth our enduring and, and unrelenting worship and adoration and praise. Psalm 145, all the way through to the end of the Psalter, all the way to the end of this collection of books, in verse 150, are all about praising God. In fact, if you look at Psalm 150, if you want to just flip over there for a minute, if it's on a different page, or it might be on the other side of the page, every line starts with the words, praise God. Except for the very last verse, which brings it all together and simply says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, it repeats then. So the songbook, that is the Psalms, end on this high note with loud praises. Well, Psalm 145 is the first of that last section of praise songs, and so it's fitting that we end our series there. But it also transitions us nicely into our ministry year because our considerations of God, of who God is, 
is where everything that happens in the church must begin. It has to start there. In order for us to be functioning rightly as the church of God, we have to rightly understand the God of the church. He must be first in our affections individually, and he must be first in our affections corporately together as a church. And so this psalm will will help us to get our bearings and maybe even to, as you head into the fall, maybe to recalibrate our priorities as we start a new ministry year here at Wintasquin Mission Church. And the one thing that needs to pervade our lives and our church is that we need to have a big vision for a big God. And that comes with a growing understanding of who he is. Now I know all of that might sound a bit obvious and self-evident. Godly people should strive to know God. But it might be so obvious that we sometimes take it for granted. We hear words like Psalm 145 at the beginning of our services as Pastor Andrew mostly leads us into a call to worship. But they, but they sometimes, because of their repetitiveness, and they happen every week, they, they don't always affect us as much as they should. And I admit that even when I read them, they don't always affect me as they should. And so my prayer this week is that I would never read about the glories and excellencies of God without them somehow grabbing my heart and moving, and moving my affections in some way, even if it's just a little bit forward. For us who profess to be Christians, this is the proper way to calibrate our lives. It starts by having a glorious vision of our glorious God. And for us who claim to be a God-exalting church, we need to start by having a glorious vision of a glorious God. And Psalm 45 is going to help us with that. And so we already saw that this was written by David. David starts here and he ends really by reaffirming and committing to that for himself. That he would have a glorious vision of God. And this is the commitment that I would like us to make, to make today after we reflect on God's excellencies. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you. Wow, if all of us would would walk out of here today making that commitment, if that would be our one takeaway from today's service. Every day I will bless you. It would transform our lives, and it would transform the life of our church as well. What is the chief end of man? chief end of man, and I would add the church, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The, the Westminster divines thought that should be the place to start when they put together their their catechism, and they were spot on. This is where Psalm 145 starts and ends. And if you want to see the end of it, you can peek down yourself down at verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all his flesh bless his holy name forever. As we go through this psalm, we'll notice that that initial commitment to bless God forever rises out, springs forth out of his reflections on the character of God. And so when we take time to ruminate and to meditate upon who God is, we just can't help but make that kind of commitment. This will not be, I, I have to do this so I'll make, this self, make myself do kind of commitment. This is a commitment that bubbles over from our realization and our reflections on who God is and everything that he has done. And so what we'll see here is that God's works 
cry out. God's works are loud in their magnificence and in their significance. And that should cause us to be loud and exuberant in our praise and in our worship. A good concise example of that is in verse 6. Sort of have this antiphonal. You know what antiphony is? You have uh, a group singing from one side of the building and another one echoing it back from another side. Uh, and that's what this is. It's, it's God's works that are observed and then the, the choir singing back to God of his works and his praise. And so in verse 6, you see that they, and that's talking about God's works here, they shall speak of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. God's works speak loudly, and so our praise should speak back loudly. So where does all that come from? How do we get to that place? This psalm is going to give us a number of reasons that God deserves our highest affections, and that God deserves our most enthusiastic praise. We'll see in this big middle section from verse 4 to verse 20, an entire catalog, an entire litany of God's greatness and praiseworthiness. What makes God worthy of our praise? That's what this is going to talk about and David's going to tell us about. But before we get into those, we must know how it is that we are to regard God. How ought we to think about God in relation to ourselves? Well, in verse 1, King, King David tells us, and remember David is the king, King David who reigned over Israel, probably as Israel was just ascending to its greatest heights, to the greatest heights of its power, maybe in history, never since, never before, has Israel had that kind of influence in the world. But David, King David, knew that he wasn't the final authority. He knew that God was his king. Any authority that he had paled in comparison to the authority of God. And so he starts out this psalm with, I will extol you, my God and king. So we have to start there. And so I have to ask you, do you see God as your king, as your sovereign? When we come into the presence of God, we come into the presence of the highest royalty, not just of our time, but of all time, of all human history. So number one, do not treat God casually. God is not to be trifled with. And number two, recognize God as your sovereign, as your Lord. He is, after all, your creator. And as your creator, he has rightful authority over you. And you must listen to him. And you must bow to him. We have to start by seeing God in his majesty and in his splendor and in his authority to govern us. And because he is God, we can praise him for the way he rules as king. He is not power hungry. He is not some kind of a tyrant dictator that makes unreasonable demands upon his subjects. God rules for the good of his people. And yes, that might even involve discipline. But God disciplines those he loves for our good. I will extol you, my God and my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. And once we come to see God as our King, 
Once we come to see God as our good king and the one who governs his people for their good, then we're at the place when we can rightly begin to praise God and to bless God. So I've divided verses 4 to 20 up into four stanzas, all of which say something about God's greatness. And verse 3 introduces those stanzas by making a straightforward, very simple declaration, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In verses 4 to 7, we see that we should praise God for his creative genius. He's going to tell us later how God acts specifically for his people, but here it's just God's general acts in creation that it's talking about. His mighty acts in verse 4, his majesty and his wondrous works in verse 5, his awesome deeds and his greatness there in verse 6. We, we can observe that God is a great God just by looking around us, by, by being outside and looking at his creation, by, by looking at the people he has brought into this church, by looking at ourselves and, and going, wow, God made me one of his children. But, but first of all here in this section, just in everything that he has made, just this week we're able to observe the greatness of the Lord through the solar eclipse, weren't we? We didn't experience a total solar eclipse here, but only uh, uh, we actually had a partial eclipse that was eclipsed by the clouds, or at least at my house. I'm not sure how much you saw of it. But we saw some great pictures, great videos from these places where they experienced totality. I remember that back in 1979. I happened to be in Winnipeg when, when we had a total eclipse, where the, where the shadow of the moon totally covered different parts of the earth, depending on where you live. Well, people that don't know God tried vainly to explain this through their natural lenses. One TV commentator was quoted as saying, only because of science today can we be assured that the sun is going to come right back. Now, of course, he didn't mention who it was that actually created science, and the sun, and the moon, and the earth for that matter. But of those kinds of assertions, Romans 1 gives us an answer, right? It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. God's word actually tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, just wanted to read for you another perspective on the eclipse from a pastor in Wyoming where they experienced totality. He wrote this. He says, the, solar, the total solar eclipse was like nothing I have ever seen before. There were those final, eerie, darkening minutes before totality. The bizarre feeling as it went from day to night in about 90 seconds. Now remember, he's in Wyoming. So he says, cows mooing hysterically in the field next to me. The beads of light, what we know as Bailey's beads, peering through the moon's craters. The diamond ring effect. The temperature instantly dropped 15 degrees. And then, totality. The sun's atmosphere, listen to this, the sun's atmosphere blasting forth in praise to God. The white, jagged rays bursting from behind the blackened moon for a full two minutes. 
and there was a 360-degree sunset. Imagine. Two sunsets in one day. It was the most amazing thing I have ever seen, he says. It was utterly stunning, a spectacle that is emblazoned in my mind forever. Then he goes into some details about it. I'm going to just read some of them. He says, to successfully pull off what happened yesterday, a long list of things had to go right. The astronomical wrench had to be turned perfectly to make it happen. So like I said, here's just part of his list. Uh, uh, I didn't list all the technical parts here, but I found this amazing, and I, and I trust that you will too. Just thinking about God's glory. Consider that the sun is way larger than the moon. 63 million moons could fit inside the sun. If the moon is too close to the sun, the sun would simply shine around it and you'd never have an eclipse. If the moon was too close to the earth, the sun and its atmosphere would often be shielded. For a total eclipse to happen, the moon has to be proportionally the exact magnitude in size as the sun is in distance from the earth. And they have to be the same shape. That is required for the moon to perfectly block the apparent size of the sun from the earth's vantage. The moon must be at exactly the right distance from the sun and from the earth to cause an eclipse. And all this is exactly what happened. During a total solar eclipse, it's all dialed in. The sun's distance from earth was 400 times the moon's distance. The sun's diameter also happens to be 400 times larger than the moon's. Because these ratios are the same, the sun and the moon, as seen from earth, appear to be the same size, such that when the moon passes perfectly in front of the sun, it perfectly shields it. And the result is the most stunning spectacle in creation. And goes on to say, we should mention one more thing. While everything else is going on, the sun and our entire solar system together scoot through space at about 130 miles per second. Finally, it's simply amazing that such an event is viewable. Our universe is an extremely hostile environment to puny humans. It's far too hot, too cold, too gaseous, or too gaseous and too bombarded of a place, which would make it impossible to witness an eclipse. However, it just so happens that one of the best places to see an eclipse is also a habitable planet. If one thing goes wrong, a total solar eclipse cannot happen. Every part must be in place, every piston firing perfectly. The rightly tweaked mechanics required for a total eclipse are extraordinary. It says, the other day I was happy when I was able to put it together a storage rack for some skis in my garage. I was pretty excited about that. But God put together a total solar eclipse while also doing things like overseeing the other 200 billion galaxies, the billions upon billions of stars, every water molecule in Earth's oceans, the beating of 7 billion human hearts, and upholding the salvation of all his people, just to name a few. Glory to God. There is no one like him. Eclipses are about Christ. He upholds it all, it says in Colossians 1.17. Worship him. Praise him. Give your life to him. He gave his for you on the cross. Much more could be said about the glory of God in a total solar eclipse. Overall, 
May it move us to bow in awe and wonder at the feet of the designer of eclipses, the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. That's what verses 4 to 7 are talking about. When they talk about the glorious splendor of his majesty and his wondrous works, and our response, the only response we can have, is to bow in awe and wonder, to sing aloud, to pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness. Well, the second stanza is in verses 8 to 13, in the beginning of verse 13, first half. Praise God for his gracious character. And here, the writer starts to speak a little bit more specifically, not just generally about the universe, but more specifically about, his, about God's attitude toward people. It starts there with God's character. Look again at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is pretty much word for word how God reveals himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And if you remember that incident, just at the end of chapter 33, Moses asked God if he could see his glory. But instead of letting Moses see God with his eyes, and God tells us that if no, no man can see God and live. And so God just reveals himself to Moses. He, said he wants to reveal himself, and he just reveals his character, his name. He says, this is what God is like. This is what I'm like toward people. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. We should read over that a little bit too quick, but we should actually be astounded by that description of God. There is nothing in God that requires him to be any of those things. Do you realize that? We have rejected his authority as our king. We have broken the laws of the lawmaker. We deserve only God's wrath and judgment, yet he is kind and patient and merciful. He is, verse 9, good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. And so we see that the only proper response to that surprising mercy of God is, in verse 10, all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The kingdom of God, you see, is a kingdom that is different from any other kingdom. It is utterly distinct. God, the king, makes known to the children of man his mighty deeds. Do you know what that's saying? It's saying that God condescends to people in general. He, uh, he, he comes down, the creator of the universe, stoops down and looks down from his high and lofty throne and makes himself known to his creatures. And he did that in the most incredible way, didn't he? Through the earthly descendant of King David and the Son of God, namely, King Jesus. The King of kings. The one who is the Lord of lords. This Jesus, Philippians 2 says, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's why we sing, Oh, the wonderful cross. Brings us right back to our last song. 
The Lord is indeed gracious and merciful. The Lord is good to all. He offers himself to you. He comes down for you. He condescends for you. In grace and mercy and love, he's come to you. Will you come to him in repentance and faith and receive his forgiveness, forgiveness that he offers through the blood of his one and only son, Jesus Christ? Third stanza. The second half of verse 13 to verse 16. Again, at those with me. The Lord is faithful in all his words, and he is kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. We praise God for his faithful provision. The Lord is faithful in all his words. He is true to every one of his promises. There is not one promise that will fail. All his words are faithful. It's a, it's a universal, all-encompassing aspect of his faithfulness that we see here. You look, see how many times, or listen to how many times, and just in those three and a half verses, it says all. All his words are faithful. All his works are kind. He upholds all who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. We never have to be anxious that God might not pull through for us. That he might fail us. Do you ever worry about that? I know I do. Get anxious wondering whether God will pull through on his promises. We know the verse that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? Do you always believe that? Do you believe that at times when you might be drowning in grief? Might be in the middle of some sort of suffering or, or trial? How about the promise of forgiveness? If you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9 tells us, He is faithful, there's those words, and just to forgive your sins. Do you always believe that he'll do that? Or do you think that he might hold some sin against you? How about temptations? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Hear those words again. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. When it says he will, that, that is a promise. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape. Do you believe that he'll keep that promise, especially at those times when it feels like there's no escape? That, that you can't make it through that temptation? That you always fall to the same one? Well, take heart, fellow pilgrim, fellow doubter. God is faithful. In all, not some, in all of his words. This is where the hymn came in that, that Doris and Shar were playing. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow, none, no shadow of turning in thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. And he's also faithful, it says here, in everything that you need. The song goes on to say, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. 
That, that comes right from verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. All creatures are satisfied in God's gracious and faithful provisions. Are you satisfied in all that God has provided for you? Stanza number four. And now he starts to narrow the focus from all his creatures to a specific group of people, namely those who call out to him and fear him and love him. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to whom? To all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of whom? Of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves whom? All who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. From this stanza, we ought to praise God for answering the prayers of his people. Here again, you start to think about the awesomeness of God, of how he's sovereign over all the details of the entire universe. And yet, he's not too busy or too unconcerned to hear from us. That is amazing in itself. Nothing would compel God to hear the cries of his people. Yet he does. And he doesn't grudgingly do that. You know, just sort of to... They keep on asking me, I'm just going to answer this prayer just to get them off my back. No, God is not like that. He loves to do that. He is kind in all his works. He fulfills, he fills full the desire of those who fear him. So it is incumbent upon us, knowing that, to call on God in truth and to fear him and to love him. And if we do, look at how God treats his own people, his children, his loved ones, his set-apart ones. He is righteous toward us. And we know that after this, he has sent Jesus to become our righteousness. He is kind in all his works. Romans 2 says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He is near to us. God drew near to us in the person of Jesus. He hears our cry and saves us by sending his only son. And not only does he save us, but he preserves all those who love him. All the wicked he will destroy. From the beginning of salvation right through to the end, he keeps us and he's there And he is kind. You might wonder why all of a sudden it starts to talk about the destruction of the wicked there at the end of verse 20. It it was all so good up until now, but listen, this is part of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel for those who believe and the bad news of judgment for those who spurn God and for those who rebel against their creator and for those who don't know the king. This is really just the Old Testament version of John 3.16 and following. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son so that whoever believes on him will not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, the Lord preserves those who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. And the response of all this, again, for us that are the ones who call, who, the ones who, how does it say it here, the, the ones who call upon him, the ones who call upon him in truth, the response for us is to be overwhelmed 
and astounded by his grace and his kindness and his mercy toward us. And we will even praise God for his righteous judgments on the wicked. We will. Because we know it's righteous and we know God is good. Verse 21, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what it boils down to. We meditate upon God's greatness and then our mouths will tell of his glory. So I encourage all of you to figure out a way to devote yourselves anew to the study of the person and the glories of God. What are some ways that you can grow in your knowledge of who God is? And what are some ways you can grow in your praise of who he is? Maybe it's something as simple as altering your your morning routine or your evening routine to, to include the study of God. Maybe you, you just need to add some good, solid, God-exalting, Christ-centered music to your playlist. Ask God what you can do and what needs to change, and then ask Him to help you make those changes, whatever those might be for you, for your situation. But if we strive to do that individually, it's also going to help us as a church, as we seek to know God and to worship God. Ephesians Ephesians 3 this time, not Ephesians 1, but Ephesians 3 tells us that the church is a display of God's glory. And so as we come into the fall, as we transition into our fall ministries, is there anything that you might need to change in regard to your church commitments that will help the church display the glory of God? If we really come to understand God's excellencies, it's going to affect every aspect of our church life. When you understand that God has given you, a, uh, given you spirit-empowered gifts and abilities, are you really going to be able to withhold those gifts from the church? How about giving? Once you truly understand what God has given you, that he has been gracious and merciful to you, that he is abounding, that he is generous in his steadfast love, are you really going to be able to withhold a portion of your income? from the church of the living God? When you understand the glories of God and the price that Christ paid to purchase the church with his own blood, can you really withhold yourself from the gathering of God's people? What in the world would keep you from fellowshipping with God's people on the Lord's Day and encouraging them and receiving encouragement? What in the world will keep you from that? You see how this works? If you give yourself to the study of the glories of God and to understanding God and to worshiping God, it can't help but seep into every aspect of your life and into the life of our church. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, and Heavenly Father, our, should say, our great God and Heavenly Father, we stand and sit before you today confessing that there are times when our praise has grown shallow, maybe even dull, where our worship and our passion for you has waned. 
Father, you have just helped us, helped us understand that, that the cause of, of that lukewarmness might just be because we have not given ourselves to meditate upon your greatness. And so whether it's been because we've been consumed with lesser things, or whether it's because we've maybe sagged in our devotional life, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. And I pray now that you would truly help us to make the necessary and needed maybe little course corrections in our lives and in our church so that we might seek to know you, that we might seek to know Christ. And so we say with David, we extol you, our King and our God, and we thank you in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.